to explore these questions, I'm joined by Helen Branswell. Helen is Stat News' Infectious Diseases and Global Health Reporter. To gain insights into the very latest science and policy responses, today I'm joined by Kai Kuferschmidt. To kick the day off, I was thrilled to be in conversation with two of the most respected voices on this topic. Andre Picard is an award-winning health columnist at the Globe and Mail and author of five best-selling books. Shirley Sharkey is a registered nurse and the long-standing and formidable president and CEO of SE Health. And for answers, we turn to Sarah Austin, world-class champion for children and the founder and CEO of Children First Canada. Hey, it's Jody Butts. And welcome to At Risk. After two seasons of episodes covering all types of risk in finance, education, climate, healthcare, privacy, we're going to be taking a break for a while. But before that, I want to look back on some of my favorite conversations through this series. This is the second of our four wrap-up episodes. Today, we're going to look back on risks inside healthcare. A wise person once said, exposure leads to expansion. The speed and rush of an eviscerating, unexpected global pandemic definitely exposed cracks in a lot of foundations. We've seen that risk has never been so present than in one of the worst healthcare crises our world has seen. Seniors' health, children's mental health, and health infrastructure itself were all compromised. What does the road ahead look like for Canada's seniors? Named Canada's first public health hero by the Canadian Public Health Association, health reporter and columnist for the Globe and Mail, Andre Picard, and health leadership champion and CEO of SE Health, Shirley Sharkey, both tackle age-old challenges by disrupting systems, taking on innovative ideas, and practicing impactful health leadership beyond the doors of Canadian long-term care facilities and right into their personal living spaces. And what about the children? Sarah Austin, world-class champion for children and the founder and CEO of Children First Canada, explains why Canada is year over year a worse place for kids to grow up and what we can do to change that. Kai Kupferschmidt discusses some of the science on the Omicron variant and global health reporter Helen Branswell talks about lingering uncertainties surrounding the last mile of our COVID-19 journey. The day was March 11th, 2020. We were notified that a deadly virus was transmitting unchecked throughout the globe. But then a vaccine was created and we all took it. And then we thought, yay, pandemic is over. Not so fast. We were done with COVID, but COVID wasn't done with us. And with each new variant came a unique set of risks and the need to develop unique solutions. Now. Personally, your particular risk depends on many factors, whether or not you're vaccinated, your overall health, your economic situation. But that's if you even made the cut. Helen Branswell graciously walked us through some of the folks who weren't able to join the so-called herd. And Kai Kupferschmidt gives us some scientific perspective on the Omicron variant itself. Mentioning, you know, 16 and 17 year olds, that's an age group where there isn't um, a lot of data, and yet they're kind of on that cusp of, um, of you know, transmitting 
uh, the virus more so than let's say elementary school aged uh, children. So, you know, we're thinking about that group. Uh, pregnant women, um, you've written about this, um, you know, the challenge of, of, uh, of women of, you know, childbearing age. Um, there just isn't a lot of data out there on that either, right? There's no data on that. Um, you know, it's it's a to my mind, it's a tragedy. People have been writing for years about the fact that um, there's this sort of, I don't even know how to describe it. It's almost like a paternalism. The, when people are, are developing drugs and vaccines, they want to, you know, they test them first in healthy young adults because that's the population in which they think they could do the least damage if uh, anything goes wrong. And they only get around to testing in vulnerable populations. And we think about pregnant people and children as really vulnerable populations. They only do that last after they have evidence from healthy adults that it's this new drug or this new vaccine is safe. It appears to be safe in um, you know healthy adults. There have been people arguing for years that this does a disservice to women who are pregnant and women who lack are lactating because what happens is the research doesn't really get done and then something comes forward, it's approved, and there's no data. There are no data on which to gauge whether or not it's safe for pregnant and lactating uh, people to to use the drug or the vaccine. Um, you know, the same researchers who've been warning about this for a long time started warning about this last February, you know, arguing that when vaccine trials started, they needed to include people who were pregnant. It hasn't happened. And at yesterday's VERPAC meeting, Pfizer said that it is in the process of completing um, animal trials that are called DART trials. That stands for Developmental and Reproductive Toxicity Trials. Those trials are a precursor to human trials. You, you need to effectively get animal data to look for any evidence of, um, you know, that a vaccine might cause damage to a developing fetus before you start to test in people. But they, they're just doing that work now. And meanwhile, you know, in the United States, the vaccine could be started. They could start to administer this within, you know, 48 hours. And so they won't have an answer when vaccine, you know, becomes available. And there will be pregnant women who are standing there trying to figure out on their own, should I try to get this vaccine? Yeah, it's so difficult. And and of course, you know, uh, uh, pregnant women and lactating women, they're teachers, they're healthcare workers, uh, you know, they cut across all, you know, many of the groups that, that, that we consider to be priority groups. Yeah, that's that's correct. I mean, the CDC estimates that at any one time, there are about 330,000 uh, pregnant people among healthcare workers in the United States. It's uh, a big so number. It is a big number, and they are at the front of the vaccine line, and and there are no data on whether you know on which to gauge whether or not these vaccines are safe for them. Even on the topic of kids, right? Um, so, uh, if your uh, child is a otherwise healthy child, um, you can feel pretty good about them either 
uh, not uh, being vaccinated until they get older or sort of being at the end of the line uh, once, you know, more studies can take place. But if your child has uh, another type of um, uh, disease challenge that, that makes them particularly vulnerable, it's a pretty horrible message. Like, sorry, don't know anything about kids. They can't be a priority. I don't disagree, but I don't think that's the reason why they're not a priority. You know, because the um, rate of serious illness in young children in particular is so much lower than it is amongst older adults, young kids we're always going to be at the back of the line for this yes. vaccine. Uh, you know, when, when supplies are scarce, they're, they're just not the priority because they don't need it as much. Um, and so in some senses, that's a benefit because it gives people time to do the studies. I mean, Pfizer has a little bit of data in 16 and 17 year olds, and it recently started to vaccinate down to 12. 12 is sort of a, a tipping point. Below that, they have to do uh, what are called dose de-escalation studies. They have to figure out whether or not they need to give smaller doses to younger kids. So they would start with 11-year-olds and test the dose in them and then go down to 10-year-olds to try to sort of hit the sweet spot for how much antigen to give to be protective, but also not to be too reactogenic not to generate too many side effects. You know, that work will take some time, but there is time because, you know, when supplies are scarce, kids are not going to be vaccinated. And uh, so so th those data can be generated. But, you know, to your point about parents of children who have other health concerns, I mean, that's another layer of anxiety still. And I don't know how quickly people are going to be able to generate data that will tell you that, yes, if your child, not only do we know that this is a safe and effective vaccine for your child, for a healthy child, but it's also something that your child can take safely as well. Now, we need to study the impact of the, of the vaccine. Uh, trials focus on safety, and we should all feel confident uh, in uh, the data coming out of those trials. But we also need to study the vaccine uh, and how it works in real world conditions. Um, and, you know, what, what other, you know, uh, consequences kind of flow from, from, from this campaign? Do, when you're out and about uh, speaking with people, do, do, do we feel like we're ready uh, uh, at least in the United States, to really study the, the impacts of the vaccine uh, in the general population? Um, yeah, there are tons of things that need to be studied, and there's really important questions that can only be answered when vaccines are used broadly. You know, clinical trials are never going to give you all of the answers. So things like, you know, how long the vaccine will be protective, we'll only know that after they've been in use for a while. Uh, and, you know, we talked before about transmission. Will people who get vaccinated still be able to be infected and transmit the virus, but just not have symptoms? Once this, the vaccines are in broad use, you know, studies will show us that, yes, 
People are starting to look at the trials that need to be done. Um, yesterday at the VRPAC meeting, uh, Nancy Nussonier from the CDC was talking about some of the trials they're setting up already to try to gauge um, real-world effectiveness of the vaccines in healthcare workers, for instance. Um, you know, it's really, it's clear from from previous vaccine rollouts that the efficacy that you see in a clinical trial and the effectiveness you see in the real world are not always the same, that typically the real world uh, performance of a vaccine will not be as high as the clinical trial efficacy because um, clinical trials typically enroll mostly healthy people. Uh, even though these ones, you know, had to make a point of including older adults and and people who had some of the um, health conditions that put you at high risk of, of bad disease with COVID, they, they were still probably in the main a healthier population than, you know, the population at large. And so when you start to give the vaccine to millions, tens of millions and more, you know, it will probably turn out that, you know, the Pfizer vaccine isn't 95% effective. What percent effective it is, those kinds of trials that you were talking about will tell us. So much to be proud of and so much to learn all at the same time and to monitor. Okay, so are we all going to get infected with COVID-19? Is that what the advent of Omicron means for us? It's, um, I think that's at least one very likely possibility at the moment. I mean, in some ways, if we go all the way back, that's always been a likely possibility, right? Um, very early on in the pandemic, some researchers pointed out that the most likely endgame would be that this virus becomes endemic and circulates um, just like other coronaviruses do in winter. And, you know, we get infected with those every year, some of us, and, and get a mild cold. And that's it. So what we're living through at the moment, of course, is this, this pandemic phase that some of these viruses might also have caused when they first entered human populations. So I think, you know, even before Omicron, that was a possibility. I think the big fear with Omicron at the moment is that because of its characteristics, the way that it seems to evade immunity and, and apparently also it's a higher transmissibility, though there's some questions about that still. But that means that we are going to get a lot of people infected in a very short time. So, you know, a while back, the German health minister said that at the end of this winter, everyone would either be vaccinated, recovered, or have died. And I think at the time that wasn't really true, but I think with Omicron now, we are much closer to that reality because it just spreads so fast. It's going to use a lot of vaccinated people also um, to transmit, and, and it's going to reach a lot of the people that are still unprotected. And, and of course, that's going to mean a huge crunch for the health system. Now, this may seem like an obvious question, but just to make sure we fully explore it, us, you know, potentially everyone getting the virus doesn't mean resistance is futile, though. No, I think, and I think one of the biggest problems I've had in the last two years in this pandemic in terms of the communications has just been that, you know, maybe it's our media system or maybe it's just the way that we work as humans, but we're constantly drawn to these kind of dichotomies, to these black and white pictures. And of course, that's that's not at all um, helpful in this pandemic. So 
there is a lot of things we can do. I, the fact that we cannot get rid of this virus probably ever, you know, it's just in so many animals and humans at this point, doesn't mean that we have to live with whatever it does in terms of uh, disease and death. We have averted a lot of deaths by developing vaccines very fast, by vaccinating a lot of people on this planet very fast, not equitably, um, which is a huge problem, but certainly a lot of lives have been saved. And, you know, this was always in the first year of the pandemic, this was always an argument when people were saying, well, you know, what's the point of just, you know, delaying people's infections or people's deaths? And that was never the case. You know, sometimes a death delayed is a death averted. And that's certainly what we've seen um, in this pandemic. And so with Omicron, again, um, I mean, you also have to realize that how many people go into ICUs at any given moment decides how well the, the, the health system can cope with anything else that's normally happening. So you get this kind of you know, added mortality at some point because the health systems just can't cope. And then a lot of other people are also dying, not just of the COVID-19, but of other things. So that's also something that alone, even if it was the same amount of, of deaths we would be talking about, just stretching them out over time would still avert a lot of deaths, right? So there's all of these very complicated things going on. But at the moment, I would say the the, the basic message is that, that Omicron is probably the the fastest growing variant we've seen, probably the most transmissible, and it's coming at a very difficult time. So there's the systemic risks, right, to our hospital systems, and we for sure, you know, have those risks here in Ontario and across Canada. Um, there's also risks to the uh testing capacity. Uh, we, we've experienced this before with, with COVID uh, here in Ontario, where our ability to keep up uh, with testing, you know, caused us to have an unclear data picture and and, and all of the downstream risks that, that, that come with that. But there's also an acute personal risk, e even if we're vaccinated, if, if I understand, you know, so that the early science, you know, coming out about uh, Omicron, um, doubly vaccinated people can still be uh, vectors, uh, can, can pass on the virus to, to other people. Do, do I understand that correctly? Yeah, I think we have to distinguish between what we know fairly well and what we don't know yet, right? Um, certainly the early data all points to the virus Omicron variant being able to evade some immunity. But I think we have to be very careful about distinguishing um, protection from infection, protection from symptomatic disease, and protection from severe disease. Um, I would argue that the data that's come in so far does make it pretty clear that we're going to see a big drop in protection from infection. So you're right, we, we are going to see a lot of people probably be vectors even though they are vaccinated. That seems pretty clear from the data. I think the big question mark is really, will, will the um, protection hold up against uh, severe disease and how well will it hold up? And I'm much more hopeful there. So it's almost one year anniversary uh, of vaccines rolling out uh, here in Canada and many other parts of the world uh, as well. Um, and a lot of people are noting it's bittersweet. How are you thinking about the arrival of Omicron in the context of uh, the pandemic? Oof, that's a, a big question. Um, last year, around this time, science named, named the vaccines against COVID-19 uh, the breakthrough of the year, right? We do that every year that we 
kind of choose something. And and I just wrote a piece for science, kind of looking at how we've how we've used these amazing tools. And and I think that's the way that I look at Omicron is really that all the gaps that we've allowed you know to to persist over the last year, all the little things where we didn't push harder to reach everybody with vaccines, to roll them out more equitably across the globe, to try and have more manufacturing capacity, even than what we had. I think all of those gaps are kind of now the ones that Omicron is exploiting. I mean, we would be looking at a very different picture if um, all the most vulnerable people in the world, for instance, um, were vaccinated. Of course, even then this would be complicated. I mean, we can see in Denmark, which has a huge vaccination rate, we can see that even there, this is going to lead to a lot of problems. But we we could certainly be in a much better position at this time, I think. And, and it goes back to what's been the problem in this pandemic again and again, that that really as soon as it lets up a little bit, people let down their guards. It's I, I said once on Twitter, I think that, you know, we always talk about this cycle of panic and neglect. And what we normally mean is, you know, a health crisis comes and then everybody panics. And then, uh, you know, and then once it's gone, people forget about it. I feel like now we're in a cycle of panic and neglect within the same pandemic. I mean, literally in summer, everybody starts behaving as if there wasn't a problem. And then in winter, we're surprised that the virus comes back and, and the things that we haven't done um, create problems. Yes, it, it's a real challenge to try and think about this, the pandemic challenge in the best way possible. You know, in the beginning, I think we talked about, you know, getting back to normal. And then we were like, okay, well, this pandemic has now lasted long enough that um, we shouldn't really be thinking about normal. We, we've changed. And, and some of these changes have been good and some of them ha- have been bad, but, but we're probably never going to go back to, to what was uh, exactly. So then some people are like, no, we're going to build back better. We're going to chase better. We can, we can learn some of the hard lessons of this pandemic and, and try and invest in a, in a world that, that, that is even better than, than the one we had prior to, to the arrival of, of this virus. And there's a part of me, while, while I love long-term goal setting and what, what, what that allows us, you know, we can make better long-term decisions against that goal. There's a part of me that's, I fear it because I just keep thinking, we're, we keep looking past the virus when really mm, this is a pretty wily contagion. And I think we just kind of have to keep our focus there until we, you know, have until we get to a place where we're truly, we have low level endemic levels of this virus. I, I think, I think we fall a little bit, a little bit of a victim of, of just wanting to get past it and, and not maybe doing all the work we need to do to get there. Yeah. I, I really struggle with that as well. I think, um, you know, so often in this pandemic, there are things where I feel like, okay, wow, this really exposes a really big problem and we need to really, you know, talk about it and think about it. And then I'm like, okay, so one day when the pandemic is over, we should all, you know, get back to this. And and I think I'm just realizing that that that's just not going to happen. I mean, um, you know, by the time this is over, people are just going to want to move on and forget about it. I think many of them. So, you know, there's really no way around talking about some of these issues now. And, and that I think that goes towards this idea of building back better. It's just too much to do at the moment, I think. I mean, you know, it's that, that sense that I get from a lot of scientists and that I sometimes feel as a journalist is that it's just it's just too much. It's just impossible to keep track of everything and do everything we should be doing. 
doing. So I've kind of gone over to just trying to address some of these things, you know, when they come up and just try to point them out and talk about them. Um, I think I think there has to be on the political level, there has to be a sense of, okay, this has exposed weaknesses that we need to address. But I worry that in the end, we're not going to address them or we're not going to address the right ones or we're not going to address them in the right way. I, I keep going back to this thing that I think uh, the, the the novelist Arundhati Roy uh, wrote this piece in the Financial Times very early in the pandemic, and I'm going to butcher this, but she said something along the lines of, you know, every pandemic is a portal that we walk through and you can kind of try to, you know, drag the dead carcasses of your old ideas through with you, or you can try to step through lightly. And and I think maybe that's a way of looking at it, um, you know, not so much being concerned about how to build back better, but rather letting go of baggage um, that that this pandemic has maybe, maybe shown is, you know, is holding us back. Kai makes a great point about letting go of conventional ideas of what should be done and really taking heed of the very obvious current challenges that this pandemic has really highlighted. We are almost in a post-pandemic phase, but there are lingering issues that we still have to deal with. According to a StatsCan study from 2016, of the 500,000 Canadians living in residential care facilities, about 425,000 lived in either long-term care homes or retirement homes or assisted living facilities, all of whom have been among the hardest hit by the COVID-19 pandemic in Canada. As of early March 2021, reports indicated that nursing and seniors' homes continue to account for the greatest portion of outbreak-related cases and deaths. In the spirit of this mass neglect, Andre Picard and Shirley Sharkey feel obliged to build back better. Just to, to start things off, and I'll start with, with you, Shirley. We heard Andre talk about you know, reports and reports and reports. We're so good at reflecting on our mistakes. We're just not amazing at actually correcting them. What, you know, if you if you were given the reins, what would be your top priorities for ensuring better elder care for Canada's seniors? In five seconds or less. <laughs> <laughs> we now need to move into action. And I don't know, two or three years ago, I wrote the Groundhog Day and, and we just keep repeating the same thing again and again with deeply ingrained ageism is what I think is a lot of the problem. When I really looked at ageism is how we think, how we feel and how we act. The big problem is ageism. And the starting point is to turn that around. And to say, as a Canadian society, we're not putting up with this anymore. And it's because it's not that seniors are them and this is us. We are all the same. We're all aging. So in, in my mind, the first step is a, a shift in not just in healthcare, but everyone to say as a Canadian society, how do we want to live? And how do we want to respect people? And how do we want to die? That's the first starting point. I think with the aging population in healthcare, it, it has done this shift. Our Medicare system is obsessed with hospitals and acute care and hasn't figured out that unless we fix 
who's going into hospitals and who's leaving hospitals and where they go, we'll never actually have an effective system, both in hospitals and in the community and in long-term care. But, you know, in, in certainly sort of what's the biggest thing, the starting point in my mind is critical. And we have to begin to say the preference for people and not just seniors and not just aging, the preference for people is to remain in their communities and in their homes. And then the next piece is to move into actionable activity with policy and funding that provides the supports and the choices and the results where people are actually there first and foremost. And then the rest of the system, the long-term care, beds, the hospitals, will all make sense. The starting point has been backwards for decades. So when we think about um, these shifts, part of what can kind of ground that policy are some principles. And one of those principles that I think is so fundamental is what is the proper role of institutional long-term care or even more home-like long-term care? But, but, But what is its appropriate role within a system? I think its role is to take care of people who can't otherwise be taken care of in the community. But, you know, we we undersell ourselves. We can do a lot more in the community. Uh, you know, I said earlier, it shouldn't be the default setting. So Shirley is perfectly right. We have it backwards. Uh, it should be a last resort. People who need 24-7 care, uh, people like my dad who had advanced dementia, who wandered, you know, who had to be looked over 24-7. That's appropriate for 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 this institutional setting. But institutions don't have to be institutions. They can be homes as well. You know, they can have gardens and uh, access to the outdoors and you should be able to eat when you want and get up when you want. They should actually be homes. So it's not just the physical infrastructure, but it's the philosophy. Uh, we, you know, we just uh, infantilize uh, our seniors and we treat them like we treat them like prisoners. You alluded to the history before, and that's the history of this sector as it came up through the, the penal system. Uh, people who, you know, we didn't know where else to put them. We stuck them in these homes and, 400 years later, unfortunately, we still have the same attitude about that. You know, what's really unfortunate, Jody, is there's been a lot of um, review looking at the actual actual, um, population of people in long-term care homes. And several of them could, in fact, have and remained in the community where they wanted to be from uh, what their preference was. And when we've heard anything from one in nine to one in four, so think about it, if we really could realize the potential of home care and the community resources, then actually our projection of how many beds we need and all of that for, you know, calculation could be very, very different if we were keeping people even more in the community where they want to be and, and really delaying, as Andre said, to long-term care facilities and make them actually strong and robust and with the complexity and care that's required um, and really create a very different community system than where everybody is now would be improved remarkably. To say nothing of how many seniors are actually in acute care beds when they could be discharged much faster into the community or never brought in in the first place potentially. So we know residents of nursing and seniors homes are at increased risk of hospitalization. 
or death because they are older and more likely to have complex chronic conditions. But the contact between them and their caregivers is so close that the nursing staff were also at great risk. Was it really a surprise then when staffing challenges started? This revealed a lot about our healthcare system. Not surprised and ready for the discourse, Andre and Shirley break down what's necessary. Do we need to get rid of separate ministries for long-term care and uh, and having a separate one uh, for health? Uh, do do we need to have a singular point of political accountability and a more joined bureaucracy focused on this shift? We typically move to structure versus what are we really trying to do, and then and then quite frankly, I think any structure will work. If we're clear about you know what we're actually trying to accomplish, I know some countries have have collapsed and made everything sort of an aging phenomena. Um, you know, others have you know put it into uh, you know again sort of community and then acute. I don't think there's a, a magic solution with that, but many times we don't think about what are we actually trying to accomplish in the big picture first and foremost and get really hung up on structure and the the bureaucratic component of things um you know i i think too that um over time we're going to have to sort out with the aging population and typically we've looked at the situation from a remit to healthcare and then that right away moves us into older people are going to get sick they're going to need health care. So therefore, their health, they're going to burden the system, and on we go. Versus if we look at this as a broader phenomena where housing is going to play a very important role, where uh, social security with inflation where we're at and pensions, uh, you know, as we know, money and how you live impacts health more than anything. And then lastly, surprisingly, the healthcare piece of it. That's why sometimes I do think we maybe need to be looking at this with a broader lens and and determine how we bring in these components that that impact how Canadians will age well. But I think it's important we don't get, we get typically over the years hung up on the structures in in every province and at every level. And I just think we need to learn I'd actually say, let's let's move into some actionable activity and worry about where and how it fits after the fact. I, I only wish I could look at something and say, wow, they were way ahead of their time. What happened? I, I just only wish that that should be a KPI that we look at. You know, how far ahead are we to be doing wild and crazy things that would maybe make a change? And that's the kind of shift and orientation and social innovation that's needed for Canadians to age well. So, I mean, that's a long answer, but it's it's a great question because as we do know, structures reinforce the policy and reinforce the funding. So it is a very important question. I just wish I knew the perfect answer to it. Andre, yeah, do you I do. jump in there? Yeah, I do think it is a really important question too. I kind of obsess about this. I think almost all problems in Canadian healthcare are structural and administrative. Like uh, Shirley said, this there's not a formula here, but I think one of the problems with it, the way elders are cared for is that it's an intersection of many things, right? It's an intersection of social policy, health policy, housing, uh, municipal 
So it's everybody's responsibility. Therefore, it's nobody's responsibility. So I'm in the book, I say I'm a fan of having a minister of elders or whatever you want to seniors, whatever you want to call it, uh, because I think it brings together all of these elements. But it's important that that minister have power. You know, we have ministers, we've had ministers of seniors in the past, you know, the junior ministers, they don't have any power, they just have blame. So I, I think the structure is important, but it's also you have to put the power and you have to give people the, the responsibilities to, to fix things. So that matters. I think the other administrative issue, I'm a big fan of having seniors advocates. Uh, British Columbia has a seniors advocate, Isabel McKenzie. I think she's had a tremendous impact on improving care. Uh, every province should have that the way they have child advocates. Uh, there should absolutely be advocates for, for elders. So there are a lot of structural issues that we can take care of. But the more fundamental one is uh, the whole structure of our healthcare system is hospital focused, right? We are, our whole system revolves around hospitals. And until we break that, until we spread the power around, nothing is ultimately going to get fixed. We're just going to see, you know, to me, one of the big problems in home care is that most home care is just an extension of hospitals. It's, let's just get people out of bed sooner, provide short-term care. We don't really think about this providing chronic long-term uh, support for people in the home. That's almost an afterthought. And as Shirley knows all too well, it's almost impossible to get funding for that. There's all kinds of uh, arbitrary caps and, and limits, et cetera. So we, we have to fix some pretty fundamental things about the structure. What's clear is that old systems need to be disrupted. There needs to be a structural change that focuses on the dignity and unique needs of each patient, resident, elder. We all have a personal story that can testify to this. I believe innovation is the answer and Andre and Shirley agree. So David Naylor, he's written uh, many reports, but one of, but, oh, one of the recommendations I want to bring up that uh, he has made is the scaling of positive innovations or even just good practices. <laughs> you know, like we don't we don't have to use the I word. It could just be like a good old fashioned good practice. Are the what are the practices that we could see scaled um, that could uh, demonstrably make a positive difference. Uh, Shirley, I'll, I'll, I'll turn to you first. We don't need any other reports to tell us what needs to be done here, but to figure out the environments that allow for scaling and to figure out how we play those out, whether it's in value-based procurement in a very different way, um, if it's in a whole different approach to to get things up to sort of an, an upscale of things, or you know, what are the enablers to allow that change to happen? Whether there are labor issues, whether there are technology issues, et cetera. That is where the heavy lifting never takes place. It's easy to experiment and come up with amazing models. And um, you know, SE, as I say, many other home care companies are are brilliant with what we're trying to do, but it's we get it's a complete roadblock to give it life. And as you said, Andre, to give our values life, we actually have to give life to the brilliance of actually providers and our talent that we actually, um, I don't know if it's conscious or unconsciously we suppress. Yes, we've kind of created, we've turned home care into a swim lane task-based system. 
instead of a place for solutions for people to to stay home. It's uh, I, I I have bruises on my forehead uh, over over that one. Uh, well, and, and you're right because it. I think we created what is more of a rigid medical model of and and pathway and rigidity, and we kind of forgot we're implementing this in the lives of the people and in their homes. And what I've always said, um, you know, years ago as a, as a visiting nurse, once I knew one family in one home, that's exactly what I knew. That one family and that one home and had to modify and adapt because that's the way I was meeting their needs and preferences. Whereas other areas of our healthcare system where it is controlled, the hospital room's controlled, the bed is controlled, the washroom is controlled. It is a different pattern of activity that needs to change. So consequently, the policies and the enablers and the funding need to be very different. And you're right, Andre, we've been fixated with more of a post-acute home care program versus more of a how, and I wouldn't even call it a chronic or at home, a longer life care intervention for people who are living in their homes and in the community. And you notice that's very different language than anything we talk about in the healthcare system. So true. I think this is a this is a really important issue that Dr. Naylor, he's brilliant, he brings this up. We have to do what we do well, we have to do more of it. And, you know, I was very critical in my opening remarks, but there's lots of good care in Canada. There's excellent home care agencies like St. Eliz and many others. There's great long-term care homes, and we just have to copy the ones that do it well and stop rewarding mediocrity and not rocking the boat. We don't value innovation. We, we punish it. Uh, to come back to Shirley's point, I think is really, really key is to empower staff. I'll give you an anecdote. I, I visited an Ontario long-term care facility. This was before COVID. They showed me a list. They have 91 pages of regulations, all kinds, everything under the sun that they have to do, check boxes. There's not one thing in there that said, are residents happy? Do they think the quality of life is good? They did, we don't ask the right questions. So earlier, I visit a long-term care home in Copenhagen, in Denmark. You ask them, where, is your, where are your regulations? They say, our regulation is, is patient happy and well cared for? That's the job of the staff. You don't need a lot of bureaucracy. A lot of it, a lot of this, I think, is we need to get out of the way and let organizations that do things well do them and reward them for it and don't reward those who do it badly. So I think the one thing, you know, this can be a very depressing topic to write about, but what really makes me hopeful is that is this is very fact that we know every problem, we know every solution, we've solved every problem. You know, we have, uh, I, uh, my last chapter of my book is about uh, Sunnybrook Veterans Center, a fabulous long-term care facility for, for veterans. Why don't we have, this is a publicly funded institution. If every home was Sunnybrook, we would not have had a single dead person during COVID. That's the reality. That's the, we have to set the bar a lot higher. We have to demand more and we have to have the expectation that we're gonna have home care that's as good as in Norway and in Denmark, uh, long-term care that's as good as anywhere in the world. That's, that's the goal we have to have. We have to stop settling for mediocrity. I shared this anecdote with Shirley earlier. Um, my mom is now since passed, but um, before she died, she had an ankle injury and she or an, an ankle wound. 
and uh, she had it for about a year. And, um, uh, and my mom lived in a different city than me. Um, so I didn't see her every day. Um, but in talking with her, she told me that after like a year, at least of it just getting worse, it was starting to get better. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. So uh, next time I came down, uh, I asked her when her home care was was going to come and she let me know and the nurse came. And so I walked her out to the car and I asked her, I'm like, what are you doing? That's turning the situation around. And she hummed and she hawed and she really resisted. And I was like, look, I, I'm not trying to get you in trouble or anything. Like, like I, I just want to say thank you. And I'm just curious, like, like, what, what, what if my mom gets a different nurse and it's not you? Like, how do I ensure that the same thing keeps going? Well, the answer was, was that she was giving my mother an extra visit on her way home at the end of the day. And that's why the wound was improving. She was just giving her a bit more care because she saw that she needed more care. And the system was an obstacle to doing that. So she just did it on her own. The system has to be an enabler. It can't be an obstacle to good care. And I think all these things that you mentioned are those um, are, are just obstacles. So that's part of the reorientation uh, as well that, that you both have spoken so eloquently about. There's a, there's no family in Canada who can afford it that doesn't supplement care. Uh, my family did it. Uh, one of the perversities to me is we provide a lot of home care in long-term care facilities because people just don't get enough hands-on care. They hire caregivers to come in. Uh, th that has to tell us something. We just don't provide the basics. You know, we need these basic long-term care standards. You're going to be insured four hours a day, whether you're at home or an institution. That That's one of the starting points is to get these standards in place and to fund them. Yeah, I've always found it so interesting in, the, in, in, in a, not so much the home care space, but just in the care space that we would never tolerate um, if you went into the hospital and, and said, well, we're going to actually put you on a wait list now. And, you know, we'll, we'll let you know when we can bring you in. Or, you know, with treatment modalities or interventions where it's sort of, well, you know, we've run out now, so you're just going to have to wait. Or, or you're actually just going to get half of what you need. And I think we've been penny-wise, pound-foolish with the small percent of resources that do go into the community to worry about any every you know, nickel, dime, penny, everything that we're doing versus it's like anything else. I think if you open it up and make it much more accessible, you actually end up spending much less. And we would have less need to be controlling it and monitoring it and figuring out the eligibilities again. And if you really could open that up so that people are not worried that they're not going to get the care, but have a starting point of, I know, I know my needs are going to be met here and everything's going to be okay. Then you would have very different, I think, activity and behavior happening. And probably from a, a funding point of view, we'd be using the resources much more effectively. And I, I don't know why we haven't understood that with all of us, when you limit something, we all want it. <laughs> when you make it available, then we give some thought to, do we really require it? Do we really, do we have a preference for it? And I don't understand why in healthcare and in particular in the home care and community environment, we haven't shifted that mentality. We don't have to control it and stop it. Actually, I think if we open it up, we'll find that we actually would be using it more effectively. 
Yeah, home care is the only area where we have arbitrary limits. You know, there's a maximum three hours a day. I often use the analogy. Imagine if you're told you you have cancer, you need 12 chemo treatments, but we're only funding three hours uh, because that's the rule. It's it's just a, again, it's an absurdity. Uh, we do it that has to be fixed. Yeah. And I mean, Jody, to your example, the nurse is making the extra visit because it's necessary. Probably she's making other visits because they've been approved and eligible when may not even make sense to be making those visits. And that's where I really go back to let's empower, let's empower the health professionals. Empowerment is key, especially for those frontline workers who've been on the ground acting as real life data analysts because they are so entrenched and exposed to the realities of the effects of this pandemic. So too are the guardians of the youngest members of our communities. It was such an enormous shift when schools closed and childcare centers, the limits on social gatherings and many events and activities canceled. A complete lack of social interactions and disruption of children children's usual routines really played a role in diminishing mental health. Yet we heard very little about it until late in the game. Sarah Austin helps us understand threats to childhood and gives us some evidence-based ideas and advice on how we can do better for our kids in Canada. Sarah, this is the At Risk Podcast. So I I just wanted to pause for a moment and and ask you in the Raising Canada 2021 report, um, it's framed as you know, threats to childhood. And I just wanted to ask you about the use of the term threats and why that was the the right word choice for for your report and 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 the information and the message you're trying to convey. It's provocative, I know, but I think it really um, it's not overstating to to, to to say that these are threats to our children. Our children's lives are in jeopardy. They face very grave violations of their human rights and their survival, let alone their development, is jeopardized when we don't uh, make these investments, when we don't have the policies and um, investments needed for our kids to survive and thrive. And we've seen that clearly. The proof is in the data around the numbers of children whose lives have been lost to suicide or to preventable accidents or preventable illnesses, let alone the numbers of children whose lives are diminished by issues like child abuse and poverty and neglect, kids' lives are in threat. And it, you know, I th- this is a grave risk to our country. The future of our country depends on the strength of our children and youth. When we don't invest in kids, when we don't protect their human rights, it jeopardizes not only the survival of our children, but the future of our nation. How can a country prosper if our kids aren't prospering? And I think that's really what we're trying to provoke is a powerful discussion about the state of childhood in our country to really confront this pervasive myth that the kids are all right and that this is a world-leading country for kids. We have to be provocative and really challenge that discussion and and be really clear about what's at stake. So Sarah, one of the things we've learned from season one of uh, the At Risk podcast is, you know, it's really important to contextualize our thinking, that sometimes our instincts fail us. So Help us understand, where does Canada rank as a place for a child to grow up? Well, there is a very persistent myth, Jody, that Canada is already a world-leading country for kids when, it's, in fact, that simply isn't true. Over the past decade, Canada has gone from being ranked 10th to 30th out of 38 wealthy nations for children's well-being, according to UNICEF. You know, that's pretty startling, I think, for most Canadians to hear. And 
you know, I think quite perplexing because we tend to think of ourselves as being world leaders on so many fronts for democracy and human rights and our healthcare system and on and on. But when it comes to our kids, you know, we've really seen a very steady decline in the protection of their human rights and their health and well-being. And that's really why I started Children First Canada was really to change that trajectory and getting us back to becoming uh, a world leading country for children to grow up in. Yeah, I'm sure that's startling for a lot of people. So let's just kind of get right into it. What is driving this decline in childhood well-being? We have seen a really systematic um, underinvestment in children's health and well-being. Uh, we have pretty startling indicators on children's development. So things like child poverty, we have uh, close to one in five kids growing up in poverty in Canada. You know, there were some uh, modest improvements being made in recent years, but you know, we've seen significant setbacks during the pandemic uh, with um, really high levels of, um, of food insecurity, for instance, there has been a 39% increase in food insecurity over the past year and a half with um, particularly true for families with young children, you know, having to access food banks, but also things like school, school closures really had a very significant impact with uh, kids losing access to breakfast and lunch programs uh, that not only impact their ability to get nutritious food, but to be able to um, you know, engage in a healthy, effective way in school to be able to learn and uh, relate well to their peers and, um, you know, a whole host of other factors. Uh, you know, mental health has been steadily declining. We've seen systematic underinvestments in mental health. You know, over the past decade, there's been a 66% increase in kids being admitted to emergency rooms for mental health concerns, which is a signal that kids um, aren't accessing or aren't able to access mental health supports within their community from their long-term health care providers. And uh, you know, there just really hasn't been, um, kids haven't been figured prominently provincially or federally on, on, on the political agenda. And I think Canadians are still stuck in this mentality that we were a world leader and have lost um, a sense of, of where we rank. And that's part of the purpose of the, the work that we do at Children First Canada is to raise awareness and really trying to put kids' issues on the radar, uh, to harness data about what's happening in the lives of our kids and getting us back to um, putting bold leadership in place and bold investments and trying to really change this trajectory in a meaningful way. This isn't the first year of the report uh, by any stretch and, and it was showing a decline. So it's not that the pandemic has created, the, created these issues, correct? You know, we had a child health crisis even before the pandemic began. You know, we have been steadily declining for a decade, you know, going from 10th to now 30th place. Um, and that was just the, the rank of 30th was actually at the beginning of the pandemic. We're still waiting for UNICEF's latest scorecard to come out and we'll see what shows up in that. But uh, the pandemic has just accelerated, you know, what was already there, um, you know, systemic racism experienced by uh, First Nations, Métis and Inuit children, Black and other racialized kids. Uh, those issues have been accelerated. Um, children's mental health concerns have just been further accelerated. You know, children's hospitals, for instance, saw some of them saw a 223% increase beyond capacity for admissions for eating disorders. I mean, it just, yeah, it, it, it was a bad situation that has just become horrific. And uh, often these things just happen quietly behind the scenes, you know, in, in homes and, um, and kids just suffer in silence. Uh, you know, we are all posting these happy, cheerful images of our kids going back to school, but in their backpacks, you know, here in um, Calgary this week, kids went back to school and, you know, in the days to come, they'll be going back across the country. We think of this as being a really happy time, but we know so many kids are just suffering behind closed doors, you know, on these long wait lists, accessing 
mental health supports or rehab or surgeries, all these things have just um, culminated over the past year and a half just to, to reach this, this crisis point. You know, that back to school plans are not being designed for the most vulnerable children. And that is who we should be lifting everybody up. And really what's happening right now with these back to school plans, they're not great for any child, but a child who has a particular vulnerability to this virus, they're just being shut out of schools right now. Are, are any other provinces doing better on this? Yeah, it's a real patchwork of approaches, Jody, and I can't tell you how many parents uh, who've reached out to me with children with disabilities, um, you know, autism, and um, children with compromised immune systems who simply haven't been able to um, put their kids back into into in-person learning, even when it's been available to them, um, and when virtual learning was happening, it was certainly far from adequate uh, for, for many kids with disabilities. Um, they have just been forgotten in so many of these plans, now, not to mention that so many provinces have, you know, forgotten or, you know, failed to do anything about the fact that there are substantial numbers of kids who, under the age of, well, kids under the age of 12 who are not yet eligible for vaccination. And there's a real patchwork of approaches around trying to ensure their protection from, from COVID. Masking mandates are really inconsistent. Some provinces started at um, grade one, some started at grade four. Well, you know, what about the kids who are under those ages who, who don't have protection? You know, the Canadian Pediatric Society, the Canadian Medical Association have both called for universal masking in schools and most provinces haven't provided that. Um, and, and those that have provided have real gaps in it around things like field trips or lunches or you know, class sizes that are really going to put um, you know, the 6 million kids under the age of 12 at grave risk, uh, not to mention the kids who were even more vulnerable because of compromised immune systems or disabilities. And um, you know, we have really failed so many children and it's inexcusable and it's got to change. How might, you know, engaging children in policy making look like? Well, I mean, the different the methods you can use may vary, but you know, our Young Canadians Parliament is one model that can be used um, and is being used by government um, to consult children. Um, the Young Canadians Parliament uh, meets regularly. These kids are from all walks of life. From uh, they represent the diversity of Canadian society. Um, they meet on a regular basis to learn about their rights on a, a wide range of issues. And uh, not only are they bringing forward their ideas and their own public policies and their own um, agenda of what needs to come forward in Parliament, uh, they are also a sounding board for government. So earlier this year, uh, when Minister Chagger was developing the State of Canada's Youth Report, you know, she and her team had the chance to consult the Young Canadians Parliament and seek their input about what it's like to be a young person in our country today. Um, when Senator Moody was developing her private member's bill for the Senate on the establishment of a commissioner for children, she came to the Children's Parliament and consulted them. Now, that's one example of how you can do it, but there's public polling that can happen with, with kids of, of various ages, you know, uh, but to see policymakers simply having the chance to meet with kids themselves, um, to have facilitated discussions on these issues, um, is something that can be done. There is expertise and there are organizations like ours and others who are able to help support that. You know, we see many ministers, the prime minister has a youth council, uh, but I think the members have to be 15 or 16 to start. And we have pointed out that that's a gap. Uh, you don't 
magically develop competency at the age of 15. We need to start in the early years, and we have clearly proven that you can meaningfully engage very young children, as young as six and seven, and, and sometimes even younger, in policy decisions that affect their life. You can't do it, in a, you have to do it in an age-appropriate way and support their, um, you know, uh, their developmental capacities, but it, it certainly can be done. And I think what surprises me continually when, when I see kids in action and having the chance to have these discussions with policymakers is they are often so bright and so creative and they have this sense of urgency. We as adults can often become quite complacent. You know, we, our persistent child poverty problems or child abuse rates or the mental health concerns, uh, you know, these issues are burning in the lives of our children. Uh, they know what it's like to suffer. They've seen it in their own lives, in the lives of their peers, and they just aren't prepared to wait. And they expect us as adults to do better by them. Um, and, uh, you know, to some extent, we're experiencing the Greta effect of that, that rage and um, impatience and intolerance for the status quo. But when I see policymakers at the table with these young kids having these discussions, it ignites a fire in them. And I see often policymakers taking off their political hats and their um, formal agendas and their talking points go out the window and they just become ordinary people. They were kids once themselves. They have kids, they are have grandkids or they, you know, they know kids that they love and um, it just really changes the tone of the conversation. You know, it's become quite common in, in political circles now to talk about when you add women, you change politics. Well, when you add kids, you change politics and it creates a sense of, um, it brings the heartbeat back to the conversation and it brings this burning urgency back and it creates this enormous um, creativity around what is possible. And uh, I think it's such a powerful thing to see in action and I hope more of our political leaders will embrace that way of thinking and doing. Nothing for kids without kids. Federal Leaders of Canada, we the youth would like to remind you that the Canadian government ratified the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, yet we are not holding up our end of the agreement. Children and youth are struggling throughout Canada, especially through this pandemic, and it is your responsibility to help us, listen to us, and represent us in government. We need you more than ever to include children in decisions that affect our lives, take systematic measures to ensure our well-being, and ultimately, dedicate yourself to the leaders of future Canada. Thank you to everyone who joined us on these episodes. I'm so grateful for their patience with me, for the richness of their ideas, and the fearlessness with which they shared their solutions. We've talked about health risk in this second wrap-up episode. We've shared some ideas about the risk to our health and our healthcare system. We've got two more wrap-up episodes to go. How can you possibly be at risk in the art world? We'll find out next week. Thanks to my production team on these recordings, to Aisha Jera and Camille Hemming for compiling these. And of course you, our faithful listeners. Be sure to share this if you seek to inspire other purpose-filled risk takers. Subscribe to Canada 2020 at risk and find even more amazing stories. Be well and stay safe. Helen Brenswell, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for enriching reporting that you do on infectious diseases. Well, Kai, I really appreciate you making time to speak with me today. 
Sarah Austin, thank you so much for being a world-class champion for children in Canada. I really hope all the listeners um, have found lots of things that they can latch on to, to write to their MPs, MPPs, mayors, uh, councillors, uh, to say that really is such a, a huge uh, disservice to people who really deserve our, our respect and care. So thank you so much, Andre. Thank you so much, Shirley. Thank you.